0: Hello and welcome to Innovators Inside, the podcast where we talk about why corporate innovation is hard. Innovators Inside is brought to you by Alchemist X, the corporate services division of Alchemist Accelerator. I'll be your host today. My name is Rachel Chalmers. I am the head of corporate services for Alchemist Accelerator. I've been in the software industry for 25 years, always gravitating to the next hard thing. So not just infrastructure, but enterprise infrastructure, not just being an industry analyst, but being an investor in enterprise infrastructure. And now I've finally reached the hardest difficulty setting. I'm working in corporate innovation. And luckily, over the course of that career, I've made a bunch of friends who are incredibly smart and insightful about this. And so I'm getting them onto my podcast to talk about why this is such a difficult field. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Mike Dolbeck. Mike has had a tremendously distinguished career across both institutional and corporate VC, including stints at Kleiner Perkins, Greylock, 3Com, and Orange. Uh, From 2012, he was the Executive Managing Director of GE Ventures. He's been on the boards of a bunch of deep tech companies I tried to invest in, including IASD, Predixion, Mana, Mokana, and Foghorn. And he's currently a Science and Innovation Council member for BHP, one of the world's biggest mining companies. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's great to see you again.
0: It's great to see you too. Uh, Without getting all fangirl on you, how did you get so good at this?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, I I really resonated well with your difficulty setting. I was thinking of video (laughs) games that I try and play. And I think I'm on the veteran setting of uh, (laughs) corporate venture capital. I fail miserably at other games. To answer your question and kind of boil it down, I guess I constantly, I find myself pursuing what fascinates me and what I find fun. It sounds trivial, but I guess I feel like after you satisfy your basic needs, you pay yourself in opportunities pursued, uh, in risks taken, And in some sense, hassles minimized or Mm -hmm. assholes avoided It's another way to say that. (laughs) What I've learned about myself, my natural personality is to sort of drift into thought partner. You know, I want to sit down with people next to them really and help them think through what strategic position they're in and what options they have. That works for people who want to be helped. And I've also learned that there's a lot of people that don't want to be helped Yeah, and life's too short to have to work with them. And I, I get that. Usually people are pretty busy half the time. I guess the other thing I've learned about myself is I've never met a new idea that wasn't fascinating. Yeah. Um, That has good and bad aspects because you can find yourself rat holing on some shiny object. So uh, I have to be careful there and uh, discipline myself about shiny objects, the sort of magpie problem.
0: I love what you said about thought partnership. I do think one of the privileges of getting to gray-haired status in the industry is this sort of pair programming around strategy. A lot of what I do is just straight up coaching. And it's such a pleasure to sit with people and hear about their problems and even be able to pattern match just a little bit with things from our experience and share those things and maybe give them another perspective or another insight into what they're, they're grappling with
1: it can't be very frustrating in corporate situations because there's so much going on and many different cross currents of thought and agendas but if you can handle lots of conflict and maybe the strategy and course isn't entirely clear and you can navigate through that it it can be a lot of fun It, it can get you down if you take things too seriously but if you assume noble intent and and try and help people through their path i find it energizing really quite fascinating
0: yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. When you look back on on everything that you've done in corporate innovation, in particular, what are you proudest of?
1: Boy, there's a lot to look back at because I'm an old fart. I realized today <laughs> I joined, uh, you know, in the sense that I joined Silicon Valley 44 years ago when I came to Stanford as an undergraduate. But if I skip the graduate, you know, the education part, and I go to the corporate part. I think that I can safely say I've made an impact in every VC and CVC role that I've had. It's been some combination of realizations, so financial impact, or maybe realizations from acquisitions, thought leadership, not just thought partnership, but improving the brand equity of the group that I was part of. Corporate venture capital is often one of the the clubs in the golf bag of innovation. If your company isn't, well-known or well-connected in that space, improving the brand equity was also important. I'm also very proud of talent development. Most of the people that have worked for me, or quite a few people who have worked for me, are now in leadership positions elsewhere in corporate innovation, usually in corporate venture capital. And of course, there's strategy development. I feel like I have occasionally changed the course of super tankers and avoided hitting some obvious obstacles. In some cases, the super tankers still managed to you know, hit something <laughs> else but uh, I helped as much as one person could I think I feel good about that
0: Super tankers are to icebergs like moths to a flame exactly and on that note if we gave you one do-over you can wave a magic wand and change one thing one decision that you made what would you do differently
1: well first of all I wished I had a magic wand that worked more than once Because there are many, many do-overs that I wished I could do. It's hard to rank order them. Let's see. Some of the memorable ones that have to do with investment decisions. uh, I remember short answer would be palm is something that I missed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew Jeff Hawkins. I saw his presentation at an investment conference when his idea was a kind of block of wood. He was showing people around. And I remember thinking, what a dumb idea. That's really stupid. And I think the lesson I learned there was that we are all pattern matching machines. And a lot of the experience that you think you pick up or that you do pick up in, in innovation is recognizing some pattern you've seen before. But what I learned about myself is just because I recognize it doesn't mean that's the accurate conclusion. In hindsight, there have been many situations like that where I have to check my gut reaction at first and say, okay, okay. This definitely feels like a pattern. Is it? Am I coming to the right conclusion based on the pattern I think I'm seeing? But there's Palm, there's Microsoft. I turned down an opportunity. I would have been the 51st employee at Microsoft.
0: Holy cow!
1: <laughs> and uh, I still have fun memories of interviewing with Steve Ballmer and mm-hmm. Charles Simone running into uh, Bill Gates in an elevator. He was. Wearing shorts and black socks for some reason. that I was thinking that's a fashion faux pas, but...
0: No, that's a very Australian outfit. Is
1: it? Well, he was Australian before it was cool, I guess.
0: It's always been cool, Mike.
1: <laughs> Dark socks and sandals and shorts.
0: Socks are a famously divisive garment.
1: Being from Southern California, I would have preferred no socks or maybe white <laughs> socks. But I think you know, we can go either way on that one.
0: So you just couldn't join Microsoft because the, the, the sartorial standards were too low.
1: No, the reason, actually that's a funny question, but the honest answer is that I interviewed uh, straight out of grad school. I had been working at Xerox Park. I had many interesting opportunities because of the group that I was with. And Microsoft was the least real opportunity at the time basically it was like rushing a fraternity the second thing that we talked about is they walked me into the break room and showed me all the free soda and candy and food that you could have which today we take for granted but back then you know wow that's an interesting deal and they couldn't wait to finish the formal interview so they could take me out to a bar and it was like crazy it was uh and so i thought uh i don't know anything about this company it seems Kind of an interesting thing. They had showed me what became the the PC, the mm-hmm. IBM PC in a locked lab. Maybe that's the one that happened before Palm, but I mean I just totally missed what that would become. I didn't have enough foresight, I suppose, to join this merry band of disruptors in Bellevue.
0: I did want to loop back a little bit to Palm because I'm I'm hoping some of our listeners will be millennials and zoomers and they may not be privy to the, the glorious history. I loved Palm. I saw Palm early on. Jeff Hawkins is, is such a amazing thinker. But uh, for our youthful listeners, it was a precursor to the iPhone, effectively. And one of its big innovations was that you learned a kind of shorthand to write on it. And so it took advantage of the fact that humans were more adaptable than computers at that point. If you learned the shorthand, it became a really, really powerful, we used to call them personal digital assistants. I wanted to say that because a lot of times when I'm coaching and I'm trying to impress on folks the importance of customer discovery, they say, well, what about the iPhone? Steve Jobs came up with the iPhone without doing any customer discovery. It was completely out of nowhere. Um, And it absolutely wasn't. It harked back to the Palm. It harked back to the Apple Newton. And it was very much the thing we wanted to be like our tricorder, you know, the music device, the internet device, and the phone all in in one handheld package.
1: I I totally agree. First of all, let me say, I apologize. One of the problems about getting old (laughs) is that you forget I frequently speak in examples or analogies or I cite music or film or something. And, you know, you just forget that your audience didn't know about or doesn't care about or isn't aware of, for instance, Palm was all about. Or, I don't know, I can't think of a recent example, but I have had leadership meetings where I say, it's like that line in this movie and they look at me like, oh, that's in black and white. Why would you watch a black and white movie? (laughs) It's like, oh, okay, sorry, I forgot who I was talking to.
0: When we were young, everything was black and white. Color was a new innovation.
1: There are all these imaginary dotted lines between how far back your experience goes and references that you want to make so that you can draw comparisons and your uh, audience's frame of reference, which in my case doesn't go back nearly as far as mine does. So I am I guess I have to stay current with modern consumer culture so that I can make references people understand.
0: I think that's part of it. I think we also need to celebrate our history. This industry has been around 60 or 70 years now. I spent a lot of time talking to people straight out of college about things like Fairchild and the Traitorous Eight because they're so influential on the way Silicon Valley grew up. Nothing about Silicon Valley was inevitable. So much of it was down to the personalities of people like William Shockley and the people who rebelled against him but became the founders of firms like, like Kleiner and had this enormous influence on how venture capital developed, which then had a knock-on influence on how companies like Microsoft developed.
1: Totally agree. By the way, one of my other interviews, in addition to this tiny startup called Microsoft, was with Fairchild. That wasn't the right place for me, but you know, I had a series of interviewing experiences from unknown, tiny fraternity-like company that created the wealthiest man on earth for a while. And then, you know, these other historical companies. But I, at that point, I didn't have any context to put it into place. So
0: I do think that that context is a gift. And one of the other things I always bring up with the participants in my accelerators is, did you know that the Facebook campus on One Hack Away was the Sun campus? And what's more, did you know that that big sign with the thumbs up on it still has the Sun logo on the back because Mark Zuckerberg wants you to remember as you're leaving the campus, All of this has happened before and will happen again and Facebook could disappear just as completely as Sun has done.
1: I live not, I mean I live several miles away from that sign. But I used to commute by it on my way to GE Digital in the East Bay. I used to count the strange groups of people that would form and take pictures in front of that sign. Yeah, there are some landmarks in Silicon Valley, to the extent we have some, that are have a lot of history. Powerful.
0: What do you think makes corporate innovation so difficult?
1: How long is this podcast? Is this thing on? Hello?
0: We don't have a time limit. We can we can spend a couple of years talking about this.
1: Yes. To be continued on part two <laughs> of the 36-part opus Okay. I knew this question was coming and I tried to distill it into, again, an analogy. I, I apologize. But I know that I'm not going to lose anybody with this analogy. I believe that corporate innovation is difficult because it sets off a natural immune response inside a corporation. You know, as much as we joke about the existence of corporate antibodies, I, I think there's some truth to that. All too often, management views innovation as the the need for change But only from a theoretical vantage point. How can my company best survive within this challenging business environment? How does it need to evolve and adapt? But just like any animal, the corporation is made up of lots of individual pieces, cells, Organs if you will, and each of them have basically defensive reactions to change uh, or, or innovation it's it 's not malicious, although sometimes it if you 're the innovator, it certainly feels malicious, but it is very natural, and you need to understand that if you 're involved in innovation. Uh, a friend of mine wrote a book which i 'm fond of, but he uses this analogy it 's like imagine one day one of your kidneys suddenly stopped working and decided to work on its own pet project, your body would freak out and would have to do something about that kidney, maybe have it removed before you had some sort of renal failure and, and it affected your, you know, your, your life. As an innovator, I think you have to put yourself in this position, you know, think about your own job. What if you heard about somebody or somebody's placed on your team and their job is to disrupt everything you're trying to accomplish. And they're sincere uh, and they have good wishes, but you know, all you can see is that the objectives that you get measured on and the way you get paid are being thrown under the bus. Well. Odds are, unless that person is very careful and you're very open-minded, you're going to be defensive about that. So I, I think what makes corporate innovation difficult is this natural response to most types of innovation and the fact that people who are promoting innovation don't necessarily understand the immune response they're eliciting and maybe some tricks and tactics and things to at least know that it's going to happen, anticipate it, and maybe mitigate it a little bit so that you don't get amputated, as it were, out of the corporate body. And
0: of course, growing up as an innovator in Silicon Valley, the last thing you learn is diplomacy. So our instinct, I think, is always to go on the track and be aggressive and, and move fast and break things. And that triggers a, a much more powerful immune system response so that the corporation gets caught up in this cytokine storm.
1: Absolutely right. One of my, I think this is apropos, but one of my favorite quotes or least favorite sayings that I have that I've, I've learned about industrial innovation is that novelty is not a strategy to most mm-hmm. industrial companies. Their focus is not on doing things in a new, cool way. Their focus is on getting the same job done, minimizing, well primarily making sure nobody dies in that process to make, yep. maximize safety and at the same time achieve some outcome.
0: I was talking to a corporate innovation professional from a very large truck company who said, look, we don't do much innovation here. We let our direct competitor invest enormously in R&D and we sell a third as many trucks as they do and our profits are much higher. You know, That's just our strategy to be a fast follower. And of course, it's an incredibly effective survival strategy.
1: Yep. There, there are lots of plays in the playbook. Being a talented and clever, fast follower and not, you know, not throwing the Hail Mary pass to try and win the game uh, is for many industries a pretty reasonable strategy.
0: It sounds super counterintuitive to those of us who who grew up in innovation, but it's real and it works.
1: I really like your point about diplomacy. I hadn't thought about that, <laughs> but if I could go back and uh, teach a hold your tongue course uh, to certain people that might have been very useful to their rise within the corporation.
0: Honestly, I think this is where being a Australian and having a humanities rather than a technical background has been a huge advantage for me my whole career. I've always been an outsider. I've always known that I need to learn the language of the group that I'm trying to communicate with. And I think that's given me a perspective on sort of the metacognition of how work gets done.
1: I think I learned this lesson when I was at Orange Mm -hmm. and we were shepherding Andy Rubin's company Danger at the time, the one before Android. Uh, we were shepherding his company around to various European operators. And I learned that many European telcos just naturally assumed that a Silicon Valley entrepreneur was an outrageous, undiplomatic, uh, unrealistic, over-promising, under-delivering person. But most of the time, you couldn't even get through the front door. But if you did, they just completely discounted what you were saying. And I think his first attempt, I'm putting words in Andy's mouth, so maybe you can interview him later, but my recollection is that it was very humbling the first time he went on that tour and nobody gave him the time of day. So after some charm school and, you know, had to basically listen to people get whatever was bothering them off their chest. And he had to listen more and say less or maybe ask questions and listen more. And I think he adjusted his strategy to the business culture and the geocentricity of that particular organization. I think
0: this is why when I I came across design thinking and customer centric design, it resonated so deeply with me because it is about instilling that practice of listening and, and centering human factors that I think is a really fantastic antidote to a lot of of the bad habits that innovators fall into.
1: Well, I think also, yeah, I totally agree, but I would also add, just to strengthen a point that you were making, when you're asking these questions in design thinking, you have to be conscious of your own frame of reference. You could be scaring people by Mm -hmm. assuming that they're used to taking risk more than you are. They're afraid of taking risk more than you are. When I worked for Orange, uh, Orange Ventures, I led that group. I was asked to go to Paris and introduce myself to the senior executives at then France Telecom, now Orange. And I introduced myself in the typical shorthand of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. I described all of my failures and what I had learned from that <laughs> first. That's kind of lionized in our culture. I failed, but I learned. I failed here and here's my. And, and the, the news is not what you failed at. The news is what you learned because you failed in that situation. But somebody, a senior executive who liked me, pulled me aside later and said, Don't ever do that again if you want to work for a French corporation because all of these people got to where they are by avoiding risk and not making mistakes. You just scared the hell out of them because you made more mistakes, more career-ending mistakes than everybody in that room and then bragged about Mm -hmm. it. And that just got interpreted completely wrong. That's when I asked Orange to send me to some sort of uh, executive business culture training uh, so I could learn about various uh, global business cultures and how not to be How how to be more diplomatic, I suppose, is the shorthand, but how not to be misunderstood because I was from a risk-taking culture that wanted to brag about it and everybody else was not. There's a lesson there.
0: That's a perfect segue into my next question. How would you distill all of your experience into uh, just a few lessons for our listeners so that they don't have to go through all the pain that you've gone through?
1: Uh, start volume 37 of the <laughs> 100 volume. Okay. Um, okay. At, at, at a high level, I suppose, I've learned a lot of things through trial and error, through pain and practice. But I have learned that you need to identify Uh, what I'd call the anti-innovation survival mechanism that is working against you in your corporation. Uh, They're not all the same, although they kind of fall into various species, but you want to figure out what your company's strategy is. I think if you're the innovator, or the person that's pushing the envelope, part of your discovery is to figure out what anti-innovation immune response you're eliciting. You need to have a big enough bag of tricks and tips and tools to counteract what comes at you. So what I've learned apparently is there is a variety of immune responses and a variety of tips and tricks to kind of mitigate some of those or delay them. I mean, there's no one recipe for success. There are, uh, there are lots of maps that say you are here and if you you go over there, you fall off the world. So don't go those directions. Maybe go some other direction.
0: I have to say, I wish we'd had this conversation two years ago because uh, I found myself in a similar situation and discounted the immune response because there was no strategy around it. It was more like, let's not do anything, and in doing so, I completely underestimated that the strength of that response. You
1: know, in addition to NIH not invented here, there's also we're never going to do that here, yeah, ever, yeah which is uh, very comforting if, you know, you're the person in charge of the current course. I was going to say on a personal level, it may not come across this way, but I'll say it anyway. I've learned that it's important to be humble, uh, to hark back to your cultural awareness conversation coming from Australia. To stay curious, I am innately curious person. And so um, I'm always curious why things are the way they are and why people act the way they do and what they might do next and so forth. And this is kind of a pithy thing, Uh, be wise. And what I mean by that is I'm thinking of this other famous quote I heard once, it goes like this. It says, you can tell whether a man is clever by his answers. And I think about all the answers I get back during a, a company pitch. But you can tell whether a man is wise by his questions. And frankly, I find myself thinking of an enormous amount of questions as I interact with entrepreneurs. But I realize that maybe some of those are more important than others. And I, I can't just have a stream of consciousness. Hey, what about this or that or the other thing. I, I think if you if you think carefully about the questions that you're asking and what they reveal to you, it can be very helpful. The follow-on to those, because I've kind of violated it so far, is, is say less, mm-hmm. ask more, and then do much more than that. And what I mean by that is we had this common phrase in in GE called the say-do ratio. Mm -hmm. We would often handicap executives and joke and say the say-do ratio is out of whack. This guy says too much and doesn't do enough of that. I would prefer to be known as Say less and do more yeah. or under promise and over deliver is a different way to say that. And I think if you build up that brand personally, uh, then people are more likely to take a phone call from you that might be uncomfortable conversation for them uh, about disrupting their current plans. Yeah. It, it, but you have to kind of earn the right to be listened to. Yes. Uh, you don't you don't have it automatically.
0: I really loved your thoughts about curiosity. I, I mean, that's the appeal of, of playing on the highest difficulty setting. It's what makes hard things interesting and compelling. I'm finding my curiosity a really sustaining force during this time of like geopolitical uncertainty because obviously sure. it's terrifying and intimidating, but it's also really interesting. It's a fascinating time.
1: I myself, I've learned that I'm apparently an achievement junkie. Not that I've achieved a lot, but that I keep thinking of small things to improve on, uh, or I seek out things to learn or things to, you know, perspectives to gain that might be helpful later. And uh, I find myself with way too much time uh, during this sheltering in place period. So I'm making lists of things to do, things to learn, lists of lists. To do other things and, you know, eventually lists to stop doing, you know, things like that. But I always kind of comes back to how do I channel the curiosity to get the best, you know, bang for the buck.
0: How do you think the pandemic might affect our corporate customers in the long term?
1: The most attractive phrase I've heard is I've heard it described as the Great Acceleration, Mm -hmm. you know, in kind of joking reference to the Great Depression or the Great Recession. The Great Acceleration means it's forced all corporations to accelerate their digital transformation plans. One of my exposures to it was, uh, you mentioned I'm an advisor to BHP. They had to immediately transfer 20,000 employees to remote work over a very short period of time. and and still continue to do what they do and extract valuable material from raw earth. But the vast majority of people were remote. Um, All companies are now rapidly considering, okay, not just... I guess some of my people have to work remote. It's much more of a, my world has been rocked. I have to figure out how to accomplish what I had been doing before. I'm I'm speaking as maybe a senior executive. Somehow I need technology that makes this easier and doesn't get in people's way. I need to figure out how to manage my affairs and continue to make important decisions that yield important economic results uh, when people aren't face-to-face. I probably or I may not need as much real estate as I used office space as I used to have because either my landlord won't let the people reoccupy the skyscraper they work in, or they you know, can only get in an elevator two at a time. So that's a problem. But basically, I think senior executives are thinking, are my people communicating as efficiently as they could be? Are we automating as much of the important decisions as we could be? Are we automating as much of the interaction with our customers as we could be? Am I over office-based? There's some right-sizing here that may adjust where I spend my money. Once you do the obvious, things like support people working remotely, then you start to think about all the things a digital first company might have pursued. So do I have my data act together? Am I collecting the right data in a form that could be used later to... Mm -hmm. Make better decisions.
0: I wanted to give folks a sense of the scale of a company like BHP, which they may not be familiar with if they haven't encountered it. If life were a science fiction novel, Australia would be a mining asteroid. And BHP is the company. It's literally called the Big Australian. And to service its sites, which are unimaginably remote, a 10 hour flight from Sydney, they will fly workers in from the population centers, put them up in hotels for four weeks, and send them home. And that's how how they've traditionally done business so Retooling a company like that to address the realities of the pandemic is a—it's a moonshot. It's a—it's an unfathomably huge change in direction.
1: Although there was already a nascent effort uh, focused on what they call remote operation centers, so the idea was that can we get some of the job done by by having a person elsewhere use technology to manage equipment and people that are remote? The pandemic has accelerated the design desire to manage more remotely uh, because they did the easy stuff. And now I think they're pushing the envelope into, well, how can we, how much further can we go? Can we minimize the number of people that we have to put on a flight? It's, it's like, it's, it's more like sending people to work on an offshore rig when you fly them to Northwestern Australia for two week shift, because there's a logistics problem. There's a productivity problem because people just, their family isn't there. And Again, uh, I think it's uh, unleashed people's thinking about, well, how much further can we go with remote operation?
0: But but Americans, this is why when when you complain to an Australian that a, a six-hour flight is long, we think you're cute because it takes us nine hours to, to go across the central desert.
1: I just watched the TV movie about the woman who trekked from, she trekked across the center of Australia 2,000 miles to the ocean
0: with the camels
1: yeah with the camels uh, i remember tracks,
0: right? tracks. robin davidson right. yeah
1: so i was at the first or second ted conference when the photographer whose name i just uh, is escaping me right now he released the book about that and i was i had no conception as uh, someone who grew up in southern california went to public schools i was geographically impaired how large australia was and how primarily the center of australia is is desert.
0: I mean, shout out to your mountains. The Sierras and the Rockies are among my favourite high pointy things. We don't have anything steep in Australia pretty much. You can walk up our highest mountain with, with no effort whatsoever. But we do have lots of empty stuff. That's that's what we've got going for us. Mike, how do you avoid burnout?
1: If I look at what I do when I'm not working, I do a lot of road cycling. I used to joke and say to my wife, hey, this is cheaper than therapy, right? It's good therapy. <laughs> and then I counted the number of bicycles I owned and the number of computer controlled indoor workout things. And so I can no longer say it's cheaper than therapy, but I can say <laughs> that it's. It's good therapy. I, road cycling in Silicon Valley is a bit like golf. You can go alone and then you have a lot of time to yourself. You can go in a group uh, as long, these days, as long as you stay a you know, reasonable distance from each other and and talk to each other. There's, I have lots of gadgets and lots of software to give me readings on things that I can improve. For some reason, I find that stress relieving. The other thing that I find myself doing is coaching. Uh, in a general term, I, I am an advisor, uh, a couple of different venture activities and to several startups, as well as to BHP. And I find that because you're exposing yourself to generally radically different situations, I myself am becoming a thought partner and putting myself in the shoes of whoever it is I'm I'm trying to coach. That's refreshing because each of their situations is is rarely the same as mine. Uh, And so I can think about their situation, see it through their eyes.
0: What is the best way for our listeners to connect to or follow your work?
1: I would say that you could follow me on LinkedIn. I haven't been too active lately, uh, but that's the best way to find me. Also, I'm thinking about, so you can't do this yet, but I'm thinking about, I'm very fond of some Friends of mine have written books, particularly very funny people. And I always wish that (laughs) I could tell stories better and maybe share these lessons that I've learned over some time. Blogging would be the really cool current way to do it and writing a book or maybe turning a blog into a book would be another way to do it. I I haven't quite got my act together on that point yet, but...
0: Maybe try it out on Instagram, be an influencer.
1: That would require, you know, taking pictures and things. I am not not an active social networking person. I, I prefer to... For some reason, I'm very, I guess it's humble, but I don't necessarily think that my opinion would be that useful in a social context, because what the heck do I know? I'm just mostly an observer. If it was a business situation, I think I could add a few things. So there's a few people on LinkedIn that are I'm friends with, and we tend to hassle each other whenever somebody makes an outrageous statement to keep each other honest. I like doing that.
0: <laughs> what does the future look like for you personally?
1: Well, I jokingly say that thanks to my seven years at GE Digital, I now have a postdoc in industrial software and digital transformation. <laughs> yes. I've seen many, even inside GE, there are many different situations. Um, uh, some people were ahead of the curve and some people way behind and some people rushed into things with open arms and others were actively you know, trying to slow everything down. What I'd like to do is take that perspective and some of the lessons of how the industrial software world is similar, but kind of a different parallel universe to the enterprise software world and continue to apply that. In innovation, both in investing and and some leadership roles that I've been considering, uh, I think that the seven years ago it was a radical concept that industrial companies should innovate and. And cherry-pick internet technology and bring it into their company and do something useful with it. Now I think it's a much more interesting topic to them and to corporations and to venture capitalists. So I think that my currency there is is worth more uh, than it was seven years ago. What
0: is your rosiest, most optimistic outlook for the tech industry in general?
1: When this current pandemic situation is over And what I mean by over is when enough people stop worrying about what is going to go wrong uh, with their business, customers that they lose or slow down, when a critical mass of people shift to, phew, thank goodness that's over, we can get back to business. I think there's going to be a sort of golden age explosion in uptake of things that I'm very familiar with and I've been financing. The reception to, I think the great acceleration uh, has started because the pandemic has necessitated this, uh, for example, the remote work challenge that I described earlier. But once the constraints of you know worrying a lot about people's personal safety is removed and we can get back to growth, I think that there'd be kind of unleashing of uh, innovation. Uh, and I'm so I'm very optimistic about that. I don't know how to time that, but I, am, I, I feel very confident that that's going to happen.
0: Yeah, those vaccines can't roll out fast enough. I'd love to see us channel some of this digital transformation energy into clean tech and, and really addressing climate change the way we've addressed the pandemic.
1: I know that it will. I've also been pleasantly surprised that it's it's already happening in, in healthcare, yep. in pharma. One of my fellow advisors on the BHP Science and Innovation Council, she was the chief digital officer for Bayer. And, and so mm-hmm. she's much more familiar with how the vaccine trials have had to be you know, the pursuit of a vaccine and then the testing of whether it's effective and the risks taken, the whole cycle time of the pharma industry has sped up dramatically. I Mm -hmm. I don't know enough about why it's taken so long, uh, but they're definitely highly motivated now. I'm not sure they're going to go back to the same you know, way of doing things other than prudence and and, and safety. I, I think that they've realized that there is some virtue in speeding up some of the things in the way they pursue things and clean tech the same way.
0: Yeah, the risk reward ratio has changed dramatically and it's, it's not clear that it will change back.
1: Yeah, and I think once in industries where it was safe to go slow and not be first, the great acceleration is the thesis of mine, but the great acceleration will present more situations where somebody in your industry did something that you hesitated on and is receiving Mm -hmm. benefits from it and you're to some extent suffering because you hesitated up until that point it was a very good strategy if you were an industrial company to not be first for the most part but now i'm not sure that continues to be the best strategy
0: is there anything else that i should have asked you and didn't i
1: don't know uh, what's my favorite podcast that I listen to every day? Uh, <laughs> Scott Adams is the cartoonist that created Dilbert. And I became friends with him last century. I did a, I licensed his work for a software product that I was an investor in. And so we became friends, stayed in touch. And I, he's an author. And he just has a way of thinking that I admire. And so I, I like to listen to his podcast. He seems, to me, pretty even-handed. You could ask me, what's the most interesting book I've read recently?
0: Oh, I love asking that.
1: It's actually a book and a class at University of Washington and a series of YouTube. I think they videotaped all the lectures. It's a book called Calling Bullshit. And it is, I guess in some sense, related to my fascination about Scott Adams. The two scientists at University of Washington put together a a class to focus on helping people interpret the many messages they get from media uh, and from data in general and scientific papers uh, to try and be better consumers of the hidden, uh, to some extent, the hidden bias behind everybody's point of view. It's a very entertaining series of lectures where The two people in the first lecture—they introduce each other. But the first guy says, "I'm so and so, and here's my research, and here's an example of some papers I've I published." And then the next guy gets up and says, "Oh, that's interesting. By the way, I call bullshit on that slide you just showed because you incorrectly (laughs) made this conclusion." And you know, and I'm the second guy, and here's my track record. And the first guy stands up and negates some of the things that the first guy said. And in general, they're trying to raise the audience's awareness to you can't believe everything you read or hear or see at first glance. And that just because we're pattern matching animals doesn't mean that your first conclusion is accurate. It just means you matched some pattern and that may be useful or, or not. This winds all the way back to one of the first things I said in our podcast. The lesson I learned does. was... Just because I recognize a pattern doesn't mean it's the right pattern or that I can draw a useful conclusion. I need I need more patterns and maybe I'll make a conclusion after that.
0: So I have a couple of recommendations for okay. you, um, both from the badass generation of women that, that came up through Linden Lab and have gone on to do oh. many extraordinary things. One is Melinda Byerly, uh wrote a Medium blog post oh a few years ago now uh, with the title Fuck Pattern Recognition, <laughs> and it went viral. It. And I as soon as I read it, I emailed her and said, we have to be friends and we've been friends ever since um, I think you would really enjoy that one the other is from one of uh, Melinda's colleagues Gus Andrews uh, who has a doctorate in media literacy just wrote a book that came out this year which is called keep calm and log on <laughs> and it's about managing your digital profile in a world of, of crazy manipulations I think wow. you really appreciate both of wow.
1: them Okay, last one. Uh, you didn't ask, This is more of a cultural, social thing, but you didn't ask me, we're all stuck sheltering in place, at least people in the United States yeah. are. And uh, so you didn't ask me, what's the most interesting TV series? You've been binging because, you know, my wife and I have been binging some TV shows. And the, the best one so far that we've really enjoyed is it's a French series called Le Bureau or The Bureau. In oh, English. It's oh. basically a France's equivalent of Homeland. If mm-hmm. Homeland was less extreme and and more intelligent and a little bit mm-hmm. more broadly traveled. Anyway, it's uh, found yep. it very clever and it's French with subtitles and there's plenty of seasons to keep you busy.
0: But I have another one for you. Okay. Um, totally different. It's on Netflix. It's called The Casketeers. It's about oh. the proprietor and uh, staff at an, a funeral home in Auckland in New
1: Zealand. No kidding.
0: Francis Tipeni, who who runs the funeral home, is Maori. And most of his clientele is Pacific Islanders. So there's Samoan funerals, there's Fijian funerals, Tongan funerals. It is fascinating. It's extremely funny, beautifully edited, wow. so that you go from a, a quite heartbreaking funeral scene to, you know, into office shenanigans within the funeral parlor. I've been describing it to people as if what we do in the shadows were real.
1: Yeah, no, uh, I was going to ask you if it was... had anything to do with the team that did what we did in the shadows. Only
0: in that it's set in New Zealand and has a very similar sensibility. So that's good. Mike, thank you so much for your time. This has been a complete delight. It's so great to reconnect. I think we will try and have you on so we can get to volume two of your your insights and perspectives.
1: Sure, that'd be great. I really did enjoy the time. Thank you.
0: Uh, Thanks for, for carving time out from your road biking schedule. I'll expect to see you on the loop behind Stanford. I'll be waving from horseback. I
1: look forward to getting out there.
0: So folks, you have the invitation, connect with Mike on LinkedIn. You won't regret it. He's been uh, such a great companion in this journey with me. Or
1: Strava, I suppose. Strava.com. where That's probably my most active social network is uh, people hassling me about which ride or climb I did slowly.
0: Most active social network. I see what you did there. Yeah,
1: there you go. <laughs> great to see you, Rachel.
0: Great to see you too. Take care. Cheers. This has been Alchemist X Innovators Inside. You can find the transcript of this conversation, plus links to whatever books, articles, TV shows, and apps we talked about on our blog. And stay connected by following us on Instagram and Twitter. If you found the podcast valuable, feel free to share or tell your colleagues. We love hearing from you. Send us your comments, feedback, suggestions for future guests, or just say hi by emailing us at axii@alchemistaccelerator.com. at